0: Welcome to the Coventry Vineyard podcast, wherever and whenever you're listening, we hope you're blessed by this message. If you want to find out more about our church or speak with someone about Jesus, head to coventryvineyard.org. Daniel 7 is one of those passages which is quite a challenge um, to do a talk on. Um, So I'm going to try and Not pack as much into half an hour or less as as possible, but I want to just pick out some key moments in this passage. So this sermon series going through the whole of, of Daniel is all about equipping you to thrive. It's all about helping you develop a resilient faith. And some of the songs we sang this morning were all about resilience and how God is faithful and how you know, our, our our house is built on a solid foundation. It's all, so this series is all about living faithfully uh, for Jesus, to Jesus, and the kingdom of God in a culture which kind of wants to conform us to a particular set of values and ideologies. I don't know if you're ever aware of just how much our culture wants to shape us and make us fit in with what our culture wants us to be. And the biggest danger to resilient faith is that constant pressure to conform to the culture around you, what we might call uh, empire. And so empire forms uh, the backdrop to the story of God's people. And we are all formed by empire. So whether it's the Old Testament or the New Testament, there's always this empire in the background, which is trying to conform the people of God to itself. And we're all formed by the culture that we grow up in and the culture that we live in, that we eat and sleep and breathe in, that culture that we work in, that culture or that empire that we can call home. And we're all being formed. We're all being formed by the culture that we live in. And that's why it's so important that we recognize empire for what it is, because we want to be formed more than anything by the kingdom of God rather than the culture around us. Do you want to be formed by the kingdom of God, shaped by the kingdom of God, uh, rather than the culture? And there's that challenge. We're living in a culture, we're living in a world, but we're not really of this world. And that's the tension that we live in. And that's the tension that we have this resilient faith. So today, what I want to look at is how do we develop a resilient faith whilst living under a hostile empire? (laughs) And so if we're shaped by the kingdom of God, that's really what Lent is all about. It's being shaped and formed by King Jesus, being shaped by the kingdom of God. And so for Daniel, he was living in exile under a powerful empire, He'd been removed uh, from his homeland, from his promised land. And the decision that he and his friends made right at the beginning not to conform to empire was illustrated by their refusal to eat the foods that the empire told them to consume. And it's more than just not eating food. There was this self-control that Daniel and his friends showed, which was a way to kind of hold on to their humanity and refuse to conform to empire. So I was right at the beginning. And then you got these further trials that Daniel and his friends endured, so like the lion's den and the fiery furnace, which demonstrated their resilient faith. It demonstrated that their trust and hope was in God, even when it's put under pressure to conform to an empire. And then in Daniel 4 and 5, we saw how the pride and arrogance of empire in the form of those two human kings met with the humble yet all-powerful nature of God's kingdom. That pride is always about a clash of kingdoms. That pride will destroy our faith whilst humility restores our faith. That pride will make us less human whilst Humility restores our humanity. So that's kind of a really sweeping overview. And today we'll be looking at really a challenging chapter of Daniel where we are introduced to more apocalyptic symbols and themes. Um, and so even though dark and troubling, ultimately an empire does not have the final say, that God has the final say. So some of the questions I was, had in my mind as I was thinking through this is how do we maintain hope despite the situation we find ourselves in? How can we be resilient in our faith when it doesn't seem like God is winning? How do we continue to trust God when we experience the cruelty of humanity, when we cry out, when will there be justice? When we cry out, God, where are you? When we lament for what was and cry out for God to break into our present situation. When we live life as exiles, under a hostile empire. So having said all that, what's the craziest dream you've ever had? I mean, I've had some pretty crazy dreams. Some of them I, w- I maybe share with my friends. Some of them I'm not going to share right now. But there's something about dreams, isn't it? When you kind of have a dream, it's like, what was that about? And something about dreams where there's kind of symbols and maybe repeated themes. There's things that think, oh, I've had that dream again. What does that mean? And... Um, Daniel has this crazy, crazy dream. And interestingly, he writes it down. I don't know about you, but if you've had a dream, it's a really good discipline if you can kind of either reach for your phone or get your your pen and paper and write it down. By the way, you should have some uh, notes that have gone around. Um, If you want to make some notes, they're all there. There's pens and paper. You might want to make notes. Some of you are scribbling away furiously. Some of you are not. That's okay. But we're in... Apocalyptic literature as we step into Daniel 7. And I don't know if you, I quite like an apocalyptic film. I quite like those films which kind of like talk about how humans will uh, be resilient when everything around them is crashing down. But that's not really what apocalypse is all about. Apocalypse is really a revealing, something revealed to you. And we're wading into the, the waters of apocalyptic literature. And Daniel will see things that trouble him. And so we're in Daniel 7 today. Next week, we're in Daniel 8. And this is a moment where he has these two dreams. Daniel 7 is the first dream. And at the end of it, he's quite troubled by these dreams. And you will see why in a moment. However, as we will see, ultimately, God will have the final say. His kingdom endures. So Daniel 7, uh, verse 1. And, by the way, we had this right at the beginning of... um, If you remember this, right at the beginning of this series was like an overview of Daniel. So Daniel 1 here, Daniel 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7. So it kind of goes round like this way. We're up here in Daniel's dream, and then we're sort of coming to an end in March, getting ready for Easter. So that's next week. That's where we are today, and that's kind of the structure. This part here... um, we're kind of moving from Aramaic then into Hebrew, and the, the, the tense is changing somewhat. So it starts off with uh, verse 1, in the first year of Belshazzar, so we've gone back in time a little bit, in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream, and visions passed through his mind as he was lying in bed. He wrote down the substance of his dream, then it jumps, it says, Daniel said, In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me were the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. Okay, so there's a picture here. Um, I spent way too long trying to find a picture (laughs) of four beasts from Daniel 7. And then I went, I'm just going to go for that, because that looks like chaos coming out of the waters. So this chapter is the pair of chapter two. Back in chapter two, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream of a statue which is destroyed by a falling meteorite. We talked about that before. We saw how faith means we orientate our whole lives around the king and his kingdom. That in a chaotic environment, we need orientation. And so for resilient, thriving disciples, proper orientation can only come from observing the world around us from a kingdom of God perspective. So that's what... Daniel's doing. He's seeing this chaos around him, and he's saying, where's God in this? So chapter 7 is is the center of the book where all its themes come together, and this chapter is really about building faith. It's an encouragement for us, and it's a key moment in the whole of the Bible. There's a big deal going on in Daniel 7. It's another dream, But this time it's Daniel's dream, and ironically, he can't understand it until he has it explained to him. So he sees these four beasts, as in that picture there. The first one was like a lion. It says it wasn't actually a lion. It was like a lion. It had wings of an eagle. Daniel says, I watched it until its wings were torn off and it was lifted from the ground, so it stood on two feet like a human being and the mind of a human was given to it. Some, some scholars think this is the, the Babylonian empire and it's a symbol of what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. Remember, he was a bit like a beast. He was humbled, he was brought down, but then he had the mind of a human kind of given back to him later on. Then before him the form was a second beast which looked like, looked like a bear, It was raised up on one of its sides. It had three ribs in its mouth. And people talk about what those ribs might represent. We won't go there for today. It was told, get up and eat your fill of flesh. After that, I looked, and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard. On its back, it had four wings like those of a bird. This beast had four heads, and it was given authority to rule. After that, In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, this kind of super beast. It was terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth. It crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. Some pictures have it as a bit like a dinosaur. Um, I didn't go there. Uh, It was different from all the former beasts, and it had ten horns. That's what you can see just there. While I was thinking about the horns, there before me was another horn, a little one, which came up among them. And three of the first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had eyes like the eyes of a human being and a mouth that spoke boastfully." And we go, you must have eaten a lot of cheese the night before you <laughs> went to bed, Daniel. What on earth is going on? So, OK, let's just pause on this. So scholars have studied and argued for centuries over what these four different beasts represent. And you might go, okay, go on then, Nick. Do your best. (laughs) So many would say that the lion-like creature was Babylon. That the one that looked like a bear was the Medo-Persian empire that came after the Babylonians. That the leopard-like beast was Greece. And this final super beast was Rome. And I can see that. But the danger of apocalyptic literature is that we try to make it fit what we want it to. So for others, these beasts become the British Empire, the Russian Empire, the American Empire, and a final super empire that proves that Brexit was a good idea or we shouldn't have vaccines or use computers or whatever you want to fit into a particular ideology. Was that too much? No? Okay. So the bottom line is empires come and go. Daniel sees these four beasts, each one symbolizing an arrogant human Empire. Each of these empires is brutal and terrifying. Empires can bring great moves forwards in human societies, and there were aspects of the British Empire that were wonderful. Yet there was a beastly side to the British Empire. Empires can be both good and bad. There are aspects of empire which are good and worthy, and yet empires also devour people empires destroy, empires enslave, empires demand our allegiance. And so this last beast is a monster. It's this super beast. I've identified as a really evil empire and has lots of horns, which is a common symbol for kings in the Old Testament. And so people go, okay, well, that's this horn. This horn's that king. That's this person. And people spend far too long trying to work exactly what all these different apocalyptic literature represents. Now, if you're really interested in apocalyptic literature, if you're really interested in the book of Revelation, um, we did do a series on this back in 2016, which is still online somewhere. Um, So if you do sermon talks, Coventry of 2016, you can go there and you can fill your boots. But then Daniel says, as I looked, as he looks at this scene, as I looked, thrones were set in place. And the Ancient of Danes took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. Now, if you're quite young, you might read the Ancient of Days. It's like, oh, it's an old person. And you might discount that. And there's a danger in that. Because in Hebrew literature, when you talk about the Ancient of Days, there's this reverence, there's this respect for those people that have lived that long. And so this ancient of d- days is majestic and grand. He's not frail or weak, that he has dignity, not senility. It says his throne was flaming with fire and its wheels, this is a, a throne with wheels, were all ablaze. I don't think it was a wheelchair. I think it was probably like a chariot or something. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Now, fire in language of the the Bible was often about purifying. It was about justice and holiness. There was something incredibly scary about this, that there was this holiness about this throne. It says thousands upon thousands attended him, 10,000 times 10,000, and Daniel's getting all mixed up with all this kind of multiplication. It's like all these people stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were opened. So in this big dream, Daniel then looks and sees what's happening in heaven. And he sees these books that are opened. That there's majesty, there's supremacy, there's splendor, there's justice happening. It says, then I continue to watch verse 11. Then I continued to watch. Because of the boastful words, the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority but were allowed to live for a period of time. We're not going to go there. Then he says, in my vision... There we go. In my vision, I looked. And there before me was one like a son of man. So you see how it says... There were these different beasts. They were like a lion. They were like a bear. They were like a leopard. There before me was one like a son of man. Now, sometimes that's just the the Old Testament way of saying there was a human-like person. But there's a little bit more going on here. There before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He wasn't coming out of the sea, which was chaos, He was coming out of heaven. There was something divine about this human-like figure. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. There's this son of man. He's given authority, glory, sovereign power. He appears as a human, not as a beast. All nations and people will worship him or serve him. His dominion, his kingdom is everlasting. He is a king. He's a king of kings. Does this sound like anyone you know? Can you identify who this son of man could possibly be? You're in church, so maybe... The answer is... Okay. So the phrase son of man is used about 80 times in the New Testament. Only three times of that is outside of the Gospels. Every time the son of man is used, it comes from just one person's mouth. And that's Jesus. He always talks about himself as the son of man. While others call him the Christ... Or the son of David, the son of God. Jesus' favorite self-designation was the son of man. Daniel 7 is a big deal in the whole of the Bible. Because Jesus, later on, we'll get to that in a minute. In fact, when Jesus is on trial, so Matthew 26, you might want to flip to this. Matthew 26, it's more difficult if you've got a phone, isn't it? But Matthew 26, 63 to 64, or Mark 14, uh, around 66, Jesus is there in front of the high priest. And the high priest says to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. Now something had happened between Daniel 7 and then the New Testament time that that people were looking for the return of the King. They were looking for God to come back. They were looking for the Messiah. And this language of the Son of Man and also the suffering servant that we see in, in Isaiah had kind of worked together and people were looking. So the son of man designation was, was kind of like similar to the Messiah. And this high priest is saying, tell us if you are the Messiah, the son of God. And then in Matthew 26, 64, Jesus says, you have said so. But I say to all of you, get this, from now on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. He's going straight back to Daniel 7. And he's saying, in this moment, this is me. This person that you've been longing for, this person that you've been looking for, this is me. I'm here. I was there, Daniel 7. Can you see what's going on behind the scenes of history? That even with all the chaos... Daniel says, does something amazing. He's seeing this chaotic thing going on around him. And then it says, and then I looked at heaven. Do you remember Nebuchadnezzar? He's eating grass like an animal. Then it says, then he looked up. Daniel looks to heaven rather than the chaos around him. So my question for you is, what are you looking at? Or more importantly, who are you looking to? You see, beasts rising and devouring, raining and destroying. There's chaos, there's destruction, there's anxiety. For those of us who follow Jesus, we are not to look at all the rubbish and the chaos that's going on around us. And we are not to conform to how culture dictates to how we should be. Some aspects are really good, Okay, of empire, but some aspects we need to go, no, we, there's, there, there's, there's a stand we need to take. And that's the, that's the tension we live in, is what things will we speak out against and what things we go, no, okay. And this, this is where we get into dangerous territory, isn't it? Because some people step over the line and then just cast everything aside. So we need to have a bit of wisdom. But the thing is, when there's chaos and destruction and anxiety... For those of us who follow Jesus, there will be pain, but you don't need to panic. There may be fear, but you don't need to be frantic. And we're living in that tension, we're living in that that difficult moment of the now and not yet of the kingdom. But where are we looking? Where are you looking towards? Are you looking at all that's going on around you? Or are you looking to the ancient of days, to the Son of Man, and all the rest of it? There's a quote here by Walter uh, Brueggemann, um, who's another person that I sometimes quote. There we go. In the community of faith, so that's kind of like us. So in the community of faith, remember we're talking about resilient faith, to imagine does not mean to make up. So when we talk about imagine something, it doesn't mean to make it up. It means rather to receive, to entertain, to host images of reality that are outside the accepted given. So it's something about the imagination and dreams and all the rest of it. Then he says here, it says, we are required to look carefully. We are called to train our eyes to see differently, to see what the world does not notice. If you want resilient faith, it will be challenged. But where are you looking? Where is the source of your resilient faith? So back to Daniel. We'll try and wind this up. In verse 15, 16, he says, I, Daniel, was troubled in spirit, and the visions that passed through my mind disturbed me. I approached one of those standing there and asked him the meaning of all this. So he's kind of talking to a messenger or an angel. He told me the interpretation, the four beasts are four kings that will rise from the earth. And then in verse 18 of chapter 7, but the holy people of the most high will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. So all of a sudden, something's changed here that there's the son of man, but then all of a sudden, it's the holy people And so something happens in in Scripture where there's kind of this corporate personality that we are represented by by the Son of Man. Paul talks about this. He talks about the first Adam and all of humanity being in the first Adam and then the second Adam or the last Adam, that we are identified with the Son of Man. He's saying the holy people of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever. As I watched this horn that was waging war against the holy people and defeating them until the Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment, remember the court scene, in favor of the holy people of the Most High. And the time came when they possessed the kingdom. Then in verse 26, the court will sit and his power, the super beast's power, will be taken away and completely destroyed. Then verse 27, then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven will be handed over to the holy people of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all rulers will worship and obey him. Then of this, Daniel says, this is the end of the matter. I, Daniel, was deeply troubled by my thoughts, and my face turned pale, but I kept the matter to myself. It's so no wonder. So there's a whole load of other stuff going on here. With the time, I'd love to unpack this more, but we haven't got the time. So the book of Daniel was written to offer hope to God's suffering people among the nations. God's people suffer because human kingdoms, these empires, have rebelled against God and act like devouring beasts. And so these visions, these dreams, encourage, encourage patience patience that God's people are to wait for him to bring his kingdom and rule over our world and vindicate not only the son of man, but vindicate his suffering people. And in the Bible project, the animation had write at the beginning of this series it says it raises the question about when God is going to do that. And that's what we're gonna be exploring as we engage with the last few chapters of Daniel. So in conclusion, my encouragement for all of us is that we would thrive. And the secret of resilient faith is really to yield, to give our trust to the God who loves us more than we love ourselves. And the secret to thriving is not looking around all the rubbish that's going on around us, not looking to the chaos, not addicted to the news. It's good to be informed, but don't let that information transform your heart and your mind and what you're looking at and thinking about. The secret to thriving is turning our eyes towards Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of the earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. That's what Daniel does. He looks to heaven Every now and then throughout this series, we've we've dipped into Hebrews 11, and the writer of Hebrews says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not not seen. See, faith is the reliance on and trust in a future-giving, future-hoping God who constantly makes a way when there is no way. A God who will never fail. A hope in Jesus is not a vague feeling that, I know, somehow things might work out. Rather, hope is the conviction that God is tenacious and persistent in overcoming the deathliness of the world. That God intends for you joy and peace. That there is a God in heaven who has a throne. And there is a human in heaven called the Son of Man who has taken all of the pain and all of the chaos onto him and has beaten it and been vindicated. So Christians find compelling evidence in the story of, of Jesus that, that Jesus, with great persistence and great vulnerability, everywhere he went, turned the enmity of, of society towards this new possibility. That He turned the sadness of the world towards joy, that he introduced a new regime where the dead were raised, where the lost were found, and where the displaced were brought home again. And we draw our hope from this breathtaking knowledge that Jesus is the Son of Man. So really, hope is the deep conviction that God does not give up. God does not give up. Hope is found in the Son of Man. See, Jesus demonstrated a different way of living. If you go through the Gospels, and this is where we're going to finish with, if you go through the Gospels, when Jesus talks about the Son of Man, he says things like, the Son of Man has authority to forgive sin. It's a different way of living you have authority also to forgive sin. Are we people that forgive others or are we vengeful people that hold on to grudges, that act more like beasts rather than like the Son of Man? The Son of Man, he said, comes eating and drinking with sinners. Do we identify with people around us that maybe we don't really want to hang out with in Luke 19, verse 10, Jesus said, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. So Jesus provides a different way of living life. And then hope is found in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus said the Son of Man must suffer in Luke 9. He said the Son of Man will suffer. He said the Son of Man will be delivered into the hands of men. The Son of Man came to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus said, the Son of Man will be three days in the earth, in Luke 11. And then he said, the Son of Man will rise from the dead. Mark 9, verse 9, and Matthew 17, verse 9. See, Jesus conquered the power of death and darkness. This is the same person that on the cross said, it is finished. But we're living in that now and not yet time of the kingdom, that it is done. But we're still fighting battles see hope is found in the future in breaking of the kingdom every time we pray your kingdom come your will be done we're asking for something of that scene in heaven to come now into our, our present reality hope is found in the return of king jesus and the fulfillment of all of god's promises And hope is found in you. In the church of God. That when our culture around us looks at us, they see something different. That they see a people that are not looking at all the stuff that's going on around them. They're looking at heaven. They're looking at the kingdom. They're looking at the Son of Man. And so My final thing to say to you is on the last slide. Thanks, Nick. What steps will you take to see the hope Jesus brings in your daily life? Where are you looking? Over this next week, what steps are you going to take to see the hope that Jesus brings? And then what steps will you take to see the hope Jesus brings in the lives of others how what does it look like to be a community of faith but also a community of hope a people that demonstrate a different way of living life that want to see human flourishing not only in us but in those around us that want others to thrive and so yes we have a son of man who died and rose again But we also have the Holy Spirit, that Jesus sends his Holy Spirit to us to fill us, that his presence is with us right now, that his presence will be with you as you leave this building. His presence will be with you when you have that difficult conversation this week his presence will be with you when you have to have that conversation with your line manager or whoever, that your pre- his presence will be with you when you're looking at your child and going, okay, how do I deal with this situation, that his presence will be with you in that difficult conversation with a friend or a spouse, that his presence will be with you, giving you hope and faith and building your trust in him. Thanks for tuning in today. We would love to connect with you on a Sunday morning soon. Bless you and have a great week.